But we are in chapter 18 of Leviticus, and we're getting into the conduct of people and the way that they live out the principles of cleanliness in their lives, and specifically in the sense of morality. So this first section, chapter 18, begins with sexual conduct, and then it moves in just to what seemingly feels like a whole bunch of random things. But if we lived in that culture at that time, and we were facing the people that surround us, it may not feel so random. If, the same way if a pastor gave a series of sermons on how to interact with the culture and the current issues in politics or worldview, thousands of years from now, if you listen to sermons, you might think, wow, those are really random ideas and stuff. But for us, they felt like they were so connected. And they, were, um, they totally related to each other from week to week to week to week. And that's kind of how this is going to feel. There are a lot of scholars who are like, we just don't really understand how the author is organizing this. We don't understand how it goes from one topic to the next. And we're kind of lost. And it could just be we're just so, so disconnected from the culture. And there were connections that made sense back then, but they just don't make sense to us today. But no matter what, the same principle stands. God is holding them to a very high standard of morality and to not act like the culture around them, mostly because that will affect their life. So in chapter 18, verse 1, it says that Yahweh spoke to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and tell them, I am Yahweh your God. You must not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where there, where there have been living, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, into which I am going to bring you. You must not walk into their statutes. You must observe my regulations. You must be sure to walk in my statutes. I am Yahweh your God, so you must keep my statutes and my regulations. Anyone who does so will live by keeping them. I am Yahweh. <clears throat> Yahweh gives three reasons for why they must obey him in this area. The first reason is that simply he is Yahweh their God. He is their God. He is their covenant partner. He is the one that they've pledged their lives to. He is the one that they said that they would obey. He's the only one that cares about them. This first point that he is their covenant God carries with it three ideas. So these are kind of sub points, A, B, and C. The first idea that I am your God carries is that I am the only one that redeemed you from slavery. That's kind of hinting the fact of where I've brought you from and where I'm taking you. So not only am I your God, but I'm the only one who's ever saved you. The second point that this I am your God is making is that I am holy, and you are to be holy. If you're truly connected to me, and I am unlike anything else in the world, then you must be unlike anything else in the world around you as well. And so to be connected to me means to be like me, and I'm not like these cultures, so don't be like them either. I'm holy, so you be holy. And this is basically, into the basic core standard, you're going to start seeing that phrase over and over again. I am holy, therefore be holy. That's basically what it means. If I am unlike anything else in the entire world, and you're to be connected to me, then you're to be unlike anything else in the world. And so he doesn't allow you to go along with the crowd. The everybody's doing it doesn't count with God and a covenant. And the third idea that this I am your God is communicating is that Israel was to obey Yahweh, not because they had to, because they loved him. 
And the implication is, I am your God. And this carries two tones to it. I am your authority, but also, I'm the one that loves you. I'm the one that saved you. I'm the one that's calling you to a different lifestyle of holiness that's going to keep all these horrible things happening to you that normally happens to people who don't live morally pure. And it's because I love you. Therefore, you should love me in return because of all the things that I am to you and what I've done to you and what I'm going to do for you. And that's kind of the ideas that are met all throughout the entire Bible when God says, I am your God. That word, your, is very small, but is a very powerful word that communicates a lot of ideas in the context of the Bible. Not just, I'm your parent, so shut up and do it because I said so. There is a sense of that authority, but there's a relationship, there's a redeeming, there's a covenant, there's a connection, there's a, a mutual reciprocal love involved that that your God implies. So that's the first reason why they are to obey him. The second reason why they are to obey him is that he doesn't want them to become like the surrounding culture. And it's many of the same reasons as parents or teachers or youth leaders or whatever kind of leadership we have we know that after being alive long enough and seeing enough people act, and when they do the things that God doesn't want them to do, we know the roads that those decisions take them down. And they're very unpleasant roads. They're dysfunctional roads. They're roads of um, consequences. They're roads of lack of peace and joy and hope and contentment. And so basically what he's saying is, look, these cultures are messed up. They are broken. They're dysfunctional. They're empty. They're destroying themselves and each other. I love you too much for you to become like them. Don't become like them because you're going to reap the same consequences as them. And the third reason that they're obey is that this kind of dovetails into the second reason is that they will have a full life in the land. And they'll have a full life in the land for two reasons. One, they won't be doing all those immoral things that just lead to natural consequences that destroy life. But God will also bless them because they'll be in a right relationship with him and they'll be pursuing him, which means he can bless them. Just like there might be some things that we do and we may not reap the consequences immediately, but we still broke trust with somebody and we don't have that good relationship anymore. And so these are the three reasons. I am a God who has loved you, who has saved you, and is calling you to an extra level of holiness. And I don't want you to become like them because they're dysfunctional. And as a result of not becoming like them, you will have life to the fullest. You will have shalom. And shalom basically means that everything is in the right place, functioning with each other to its most maximum potential, so that you can be content and satisfied and at peace, and at right with everything. And that's what he's giving them here. Now he's also, when he calls them to this, he's not primarily just calling them to be spiritual, right? to be praying and reading the Bible and saying the right things, not just for a spiritual purpose, but that he's calling them to be unique and separate as God's people. Holiness must also find its expression in life by adhering to ethical principles and practices and to demonstrate God-likeness. You are the image of God. And he is not just calling you to be spiritual, to have the right answers at the right time, and you can do the right 
church Christian disciplines of prayer, reading the Bible, but that he's actually calling you to an ethical life, a truly moral life, where you truly are what you say you are. And that when you have the right answers, those right answers are actually changing your life. And those practices are changing your life. And the point here is that you are the image of God. And remember, the image of God means to be like God in his character, because you're going to represent him, that other people will know who he is by the way that they watch you, so that you can rule and subdue the world, meaning that make everything else look like him, so that everything else becomes good, everything else becomes clean, everything else becomes holy, everything else becomes shalom. And that's what he's calling you to. And so the ultimate idea of the image of God is that your life, your thoughts, your words, your deeds are supposed to tell the truth about God. And that when people listen to you, watch you, they think that's what God is like. And that's the kind of obedience that he's calling them to. Now, these regulations in verse 6 begin with the command that no one is to approach a close relative in order to have sexual relations with them. Now, once again, I mentioned last week, this kind of feels like, duh. Um, But one of the reasons he's going to go through this huge list is because this is what everybody else in the ancient world does. Everything that he forbids of who you're allowed to have sexual conduct with is pretty much what everybody else is doing. And they're not just doing it in a going off the road and everybody in the culture would be like, eh, I don't know, but I, we still think that's wrong. But doing it in the sense that it's right, it's good. And so these behaviors are very common around them, and so he's condemning them. Now, you have to understand that these sexual conducts that he's going to forbid carried throughout the entire ancient world. There were some cultures that were better than others, but these behaviors are going to carry into the Greek world and the Roman world. And the only reason that Americans do not think that these are okay is because Christianity has changed the world. And if you pay attention to the news, a lot of these ideas are starting to come back. We're seeing it in movies, we're seeing it in writings and books and entertainment, and we're seeing it in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has already legalized homosexuality. They're seriously considering lowering the age of pedophilia down to 11, and they're actually really close to legalizing bestiality in a certain sense. Many, many Harvard, Yale, Princeton professors, tenure professors, are making serious arguments for why all these practices should be okay and why it should change. And you know the minute the entertainment entertains you with this, And the minute that your intelligentia, your Ivy League Tower professors begin to teach this, it's not long because these guys are the ones who run the country or they're the ones who educate the people who run the country. And so the reality is it is only Christianity, it is only the Judeo-Christian morality that has really changed the world. And the fact that people lived it so powerfully that people saw a difference in their life He basically says, you're not allowed to approach any close relative. And he goes through a list. And the list pretty much involves your dad, um, your uncles, aunts, cousins, nieces, nephews. I mean, you can go through the list. There's nothing like rocket scientists about it. It's just 
a whole bunch of family relationships. The only thing that he does not forbid is that one is not allowed to sleep with their daughter. Now, that does not mean that God is saying it's okay, but remember the Levitical law is adding to laws that already exist and are accepted or in cultures around them. Most of the time when God does laws, it's because he's saying that they don't have those laws and I do, or their laws aren't quite right and I'm going to tweak them or I'm going to take them further than what they've gone, or I'm going to completely contradict them. But if the laws are something that God is in total agreement to, he doesn't usually add to it. And that's something that's hard for sometimes the modern American to think is that this is more of a part two to the laws. It's a commentary on the laws that already exists. And one of the reasons he probably does not forbid sleeping with your daughter is because that was the one thing that was already culturally condemned in all the nations around them. That was the one kind of sexual relationship with your daughter or your son um, that was completely forbidden in the ancient world according to all most law codes. All other relations were not really forbidden. And so some cultures forbid a few and some cultures others, but overall this is the one that was pretty universally accepted. So in that sense, God doesn't feel the need to repeat because he's adding to it, which also suggests that this law was meant for a certain time period. Because if God knows that laws are going to drastically change over the years and that this was meant to be a law that we were to be under all the time, then he would have spoken a universal law. But the fact that he doesn't means that he meant to add or change it. And he does, because when Christ comes along, he changes things. He doesn't repeat all the laws. He just changes a few things. And that's what God is doing, is he's not putting us under one law for one time period, and that's universal. He's slightly adjusting the laws over time as different eras and different cultures come in. Now we have a new commentator, and that is the Holy Spirit. And that's the one we should be going to. And so these laws forbid these sexual relations. Now the reason is, why are you not allowed to have sex with all these family members? On the, on the surface, we think, because that's kind of gross. But your feelings of grossness are not a good standard for morality, um, because everybody's standard is completely different. But one of the reasons is that to have one relationship in one way, to be very, very familiar and very connected to somebody in one way, and to bring a completely different kind of relationship, like a sexual one, into it, is just going to make things very confusing. Part of it, it could be genetics, but he doesn't list genetics here as a reason. We now know today that's a major reason. But part of it is that you, you, we know even the movies, when they have like two people that are really good friends and they've been hanging out since a kid and they're almost like brother and sister and then some kind of romantic element is thrown into that, it gets really awkward and weird and things get really dysfunctional really quickly. And that's kind of the idea. And so, or that you might have, um, we knew people, I knew a person growing up that they took this girl in and provided a home for her and she kind of grew up with them. And then the son ended up getting married with her, but it was almost like they were brother and sister. And that relationship was so close and so tight that when they added the romantic one in, it just made things really weird and they ended up getting divorced because things just got complicated, it was weird. And I just think it was they didn't know how to relate to each other. And one of the reasons is it just really makes things confusing 
when you have one kind of intimate relationship and then you throw the sexual into that, it makes it very difficult for you to have a healthy, true, intimate relationship with somebody in the way that you're supposed to. Because in a broken world, sex tends to complicate and make things dysfunctional pretty quickly because we don't know how to handle it properly. And so he's protecting it. The other reason is that sex is, we know, an incredible gift from God given to us to bring two people together. But it also tends to be the thing that we pervert and abuse the most, which means it can be one of the most destructive things out there. Just like fire is incredible and lightning is incredible and they're incredible gifts from God, but they also tend to be some of the most destructive things out there. And so the greater that something is, the more powerful its destruction. And so God has got three boundaries here, the inner boundary, the middle boundary, and the outer boundary. And so he's going to deal with these boundaries. And basically what is the relationships that are the closest to you, the relationships that are a little bit further out, and the relationships that are further away. And he starts with the ones that are closest to you. And the reason he's establishing these boundaries is, first, Yahweh establishes marriage as a social institution that would become the cornerstone of all their social structures. Thus, the way that one treats the purity of marriage and the family would determine the integrity of everything else. The most important boundary you have is your inner boundary. The way that you treat marriage, the way that you treat your family members, the way that you treat sex will determine the way that you treat everything else in your culture. If marriage, family, and sex gets perverted, everything else definitely will. Why? Because these things are the most intimate things in our lives. They are the most powerful things in our lives. They are the most intimate things in our lives. They're the things that we draw the most meaning from in our lives. When we step outside of marriage, we step outside of our really close, intimate family. And when we step outside of sex, those things outside of those three things tend to be less powerful in our life. We tend to draw less meaning from them. Even growing up, even if you had a dysfunctional family, and even if you're not really close to your family, you still know that the identity that you have from your family has affected everything else in your life. Even your friends. Even if you have a horrible, abusive father that you grew up in and you hate him, you still know that that relationship was so powerful in your life that the relationship you have from that, the dysfunctionality, the brokenness that brought in your life, has affected everything else in your life right? And we know, even if that didn't happen to you, we know enough people that it has. And so this is why God is saying, if you don't protect these three things, marriage, close relationships within your family, and sex, it will affect everything else in a negative way. If you protect them and hold them up as sacred, it will, in the positive sense, affect everything else. And any psychologist can tell you that typically the first thing they do when you get counseling is go back to your childhood. And there is truth to that. And so the reality is this is what God is saying. The minute this falls apart, then everything else falls apart. And we now know that because we are now looking at a culture. And look, even the secular atheistic scholars and counselors and psychologists are telling you that one of the major contributors to the breakdown of our societies is the breakdown of marriages in America. The absent fathers and absent mothers 
are one of the leading absolute highest causes to why so many things in America are broken and falling apart. And I think that's very interesting. When it really comes down to it, they'll say, oh yeah, you can survive in a single parent home, and oh yeah, you can survive with my two dads or my two moms and that kind of stuff. And you can. We know lots of people that God has been able to bring them out and give them health and protect them, but not every single family. And when too many families are broken, then the culture begins to break. And we're starting to see that. And Philip Yancey has got a great thing on the statistics of the modern-day family and how it's been connected to the statistics of things falling apart in America. And I mentioned briefly the other week that you can trace most of our problems in America, crime, teen pregnancy, um, divorces, sexually transmitted diseases, all this kind of stuff all go back to the 1960s. And what did the 1960s were about? Hippies. Hippies. But they were about two things. Destroying social structures and the breakdown of what we understand as love. Redefining love. And what's interesting is that everybody who's aligned themselves with Satan, Aleister Crawley, Anton LaVey, all these satanic-like figures have all said that the first thing that they've dedicated their entire life down to is breaking down our modern definitions of family. And it's very interesting that the thing that God wants you to protect the most uh, just happens to be the thing that every Satanist says that they want to redefine and destroy and destructure. And it results to a broken down society. And this is why I really, 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 truly believe that the answer to fixing America has nothing to do with these presidential figures. The answer has to do with restoring the family. Because none of this immigration and all that kind of stuff, the racism, all that kind of stuff will not matter. Laws cannot regulate that when there is no solid family institution to help define that. These are not, laws don't define what these things mean in our heart. Family defines what these things mean in our heart. And then the laws, you can regulate it and you can punish it, but it won't change anything. And until we get back to restoring and rebuilding up God's biblical definition of family, nothing will ever change for the positive in this country. And we might be able to put band-aids on it or slow things down. So people ask, who are you voting for? I, I say, I vote for the one who's going to destroy our country the slowest. Okay, so, I mean, that's really all it is. Some people are better at slowing it down and putting in the brakes, but the reality is the only thing that changes anything is the family, and that's what God is saying. And if you start getting really confused with the proper relationship you're supposed to have with people in your family, then you're going to be very confused with the proper relationship you're supposed to have with people outside your family. And if you can't trust the people close in your family or things become emotionally mixed up and weirdly defined, then you're not going to be able to concretely see the world for the way that it's supposed to and correctly define it as well. Does that make sense? And it starts with God, because how you see God will determine everything else. And then it goes to the family, and that will affect it. And we know, too, I know lots of people that can't accept God because their father was not a good father. And so these things go both ways. 
You view the family because of the way you view God, and you view God the way that you view fa- your family. Period. That's why God says that He wants you to treat this so sacred. Second reason that He's holding this up so high is that sexual intercourse was marriage for God. For the ancient person and for God, to have sexual intercourse makes you married. Period. Even when you get to the Second Testament. This is one of the reasons that Paul even argues, do not give yourself over to prostitutes or premarital sex or whatever, because you're marrying them. Listen, if you get up in front of a church and a pastor by the state of Ohio, I pronounce you, man and wife, and I invest you, and you don't go home and consummate the marriage for sexual intercourse, in God's eyes, you're not married. It does not matter what Ohio says. It only matters that when you two give yourselves over completely to each other and become one in every kind of a way, that's what makes you marry. I'm not saying that like all those people that you were with, if you've had that kind of a past, you're like, oh my gosh, now you're a polygamist. But if you did have a past where you were sexually active before you got married, know, one, that God can redeem anything and that God can change and restore you, but you also are the first person that knows that all that baggage you brought with you into every other relationship. And if you talk to people who are active before they're married to somebody else, though they may not be technically married in the sense that, okay, you have to live with them now, and you've got all these husbands or all these wives now in your life throughout your many 20 years of your sexual activity, everybody can tell you that there's emotional baggage that comes in. Memories, ideas, worldviews, feelings, expectations, hurts are all brought into the previous marriage, the, new, the current marriage. And anybody who's been through that can tell you that they bring all those people with them in some way. Because that's what God meant. If you begin to start binding yourself to somebody in this metaphysical, spiritual kind of a way that we can't comprehend or quantify or measure on a scientific level, we just know that something happens that is unexplainable, you're going to bring that with you. Technically, you're not bringing those people physically with you into the marriage, but you are bringing all those connections. And that will affect the connection you're supposed to have with the one that you're married to now. Does this make sense? And for most of it does. It's usually the, my students that had to work a lot harder to convince them of this kind of stuff. And so the reality is most of us have been alive long enough that we've had enough friends that we know their past and know what they're struggling with today currently because of their past. It's harder to convince the young people that that's going to be your future result. And so this is why when it comes to Leviticus in this area, it's much harder to teach this to a young student. In some ways, it's easy to, easier to teach some things in the Bible to younger people because they don't have all these already preconceived ideas of what the Bible is supposed to say and what I've been taught my entire life. But in other ways, it's easier to teach adults what the Bible is saying because we've got the experience to be able to look back and say, oh yeah, I can see all those years of the consequences that I or my friends have dealt with, and now this totally makes sense to me where it didn't back then. If only we could have the best of both worlds. So, um, And that's why God calls us to be the body of Christ. We need to listen to each other. The reality is this is why God is saying this. Um, this will affect you. You are married to those people to a certain extent when you had an improper relationship with them. Third, there was no concept of romantic love or compatibility. 
Today we have this idea of romance and compatible. And, and all of us know by now, romance is not the building blocks for marriage. I mean, is romance important to marriage? Yes. Is it the foundation, the building block, the primary reason that you get married? No. Compatibility is a myth. In certain sense, are you, should you be compatible? Yeah, I should probably marry somebody who's a Christian, that compatibility. Someone that you're at least somewhat attracted to in some kind of way, and I don't mean just visually either. But we all know that we've changed. There's a lot of things that my wife and I had in common when we first got married, and I've kind of grown out of those hobbies or interests. They're just kind of boring to me now. Like, I've done it so many times, it's like, I'm not really interested. And we've grown into new hobbies or new interests and that kind of stuff. And eventually, whatever you were compatible on when you first got married 13, 14, 15, 16, 20, 30, 40 years later, you're not that person anymore. And so when God is saying, look, don't let your emotions create a connection, because this idea of romantic love of being guided by the flesh is not biblical, and it's not going to be sustainable. And in fact, statistically speaking, arranged marriages actually do better than romantic marriages. And the reason is, in the ancient world, you knew you couldn't get out of this. You're arranged into it. And you knew that it was going to be work to get to know each other. And you're invested in it. And the community picks somebody for you, which means to get out of this meant to lose the community. And nobody wants to lose the community in the ancient world because survival is absolutely necessary to be a part of the community, or being part of the community. Community is part necessary for survival. And so the reality is there was no getting out of it. So you both kind of looked at each other and said, guess we've got to make the best out of this, period for better or for worse. And by now, hopefully we all understand that that's actually what makes a good marriage, is working at it and, and sticking to it even when you don't feel like it. And when somebody begins to work at the marriage, when you're not the most lovable person and they don't feel like it, that's what then produces the romantic feelings. Like, wow, this makes me feel really special that they're willing to invest in me even though they're not really in the best mood for it, and I haven't been the best person to live with right now for whatever reason. And that produces a romantic emotional connection that then draws you closer. Where today, if you're brought together in romantic feel-good things, if those feel-good things don't last, which they won't, then you think, I married the wrong person. And in a culture where everything is in flux and there is no real consequences for leaving it, you just go in and out and in and out and in and out as freely as you want, and you don't realize you have to work at it, and you never end up having a good relationship with anybody because all relationships are based on work. That's why God is saying, like, look, these relationships are firmly established by God, and to have the right relationship with the right people is going to be work, but it will be worth it in the long run. Now, God also forbids that you're not allowed to marry somebody of a close relative. So, if your uncle married somebody or whatever, or your brother married, let's go with the brother. If your brother married somebody and then he dies, you're not allowed to marry his wife because you've already started to develop a close relationship there. And then to add something romantic in confuses everything. Now, there's one exception. If your brother dies with no kids and his family line dies with him, then you're allowed to marry his wife, surviving wife, in order to provide a kid for him so this line will go on. Now, this is what's interesting. God normally forbids 
the marrying of your brother's wife if he dies, but makes exception here, which says to you how important it is for your family line to survive to God. If he's willing to make an exception, if you had no kids in order to keep the kids going, that says to you how important having kids and the name and the line of your family surviving is to him. He's willing to make an exception here. 